Hello, I am Grayson Brulte, and welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today. Before this episode begins, please kindly take a moment to follow and be notified when a new episode is released. SAE Tomorrow Today is published every Thursday. On today's episode, I sat down with Andrew Wydell, Vice President, Product Planning, Vehicle Systems at ZF Group. For over 100 years, ZF Group has been in the business of transmissions. Today, they are bridging the gap into hybrid and mentoring tomorrow's engineers to build the next generation of vehicles. We're honored to have a peek into this fascinating world. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you, Grayson. I'm super excited to have you here. ZF's name comes up in this conversation I have and that conversation I have. And I'm like, okay, it's a really cool brand that everybody likes, that everybody uses. So I'm really excited to have a conversation to discuss what makes ZF so magical. Andrew, growing up, you had a teacher named Mr. Sherman who ran the metal shop and encouraged you to keep hands-on classes. What impact did Mr. Sherman have on you? So um, I'm originally from the UK, and in the UK schooling system, we actually choose electives quite early in our academic careers. Um, And so this happens in middle school. Um, At that time, I was actually starting down a a fairly academic path, lots of uh, math and sciences and so on. But he encouraged me to keep some practical hands-on classes as well and and to have a balanced uh, uh, class schedule. So it ended up that combination of of science and math studies on one side, the theory, together with the hands-on practical experience with with, uh, metalworking and so on, was the foundation for me going into an engineering career path rather than something like business or finance. Because you're doing the best of both worlds. And one of the cool projects you worked on in Mr. Sherman's metal class was building a go-kart. Could you talk about that experience, please? It was. I mean, uh, growing up, I spent a lot of time building plastic models. You know, I had lots of planes hanging from the ceiling in my bedroom and so on. Um, and I spent hours and hours playing with Legos. Um, the, the go-kart project, though, was the first time I was involved in something that was actually kind of useful. You know, it was something I could use rather than just look at. Um, and so, you know, having been through that, that really started a mindset of, of designing things to, to solve problems or do useful things, um, which is really the core of engineering. I got to ask, I love Legos. I think they're the coolest toy in the world. I, I have a little daughter now, seven, and, and we build these sets. And I don't remember when I was a kid getting all these fancy sets and building these things. I love that. What were some of the coolest things that you built with your Legos? I remember as a, a school project, I built a model of a hydroelectric power station. That's fancy. <laughs> and I had some spinning turbines and, and so on. I, I built Cinderella's castle and I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm actually still working through, I, I have a, a, a kit on the go at the moment. No, on, on the model side, I actually still build Lego kits today. I've got one I'm working on at the moment, which was a birthday kit for a, a McLaren race car. Fantastic. So you still have this in- incredible passion for Legos. You're, you're building really cool things. And one thing that you have a passion for that I also have a passion for is car audio. I was the guy in the wood shop trying to build a speaker box and make a boom, 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 boom. And then meanwhile, when you and I talked offline, you're building like this really cool high-end car audio stuff. Could you talk about that, please? Yeah, so um, basically I first got interested in car audio when I was at college. But uh, I got my first car and as a teenager, I was looking to individualize it or personalize it. But uh, in those early days, it was really on a shoestring budget. So, uh, you know, the Pioneer amplifier and then upgraded and and so on. Um, Once I started work at at Ford, though, uh, after graduation, 
I had a bigger budget to work with. And so that way I could really start to indulge. But uh, the best part for me was uh, working in the Ford Engineering Center. A vacancy came up in the audio engineering department, um, which I applied for and moved over there. So at that point, I was getting paid to work on my hobby. That's the best of both worlds. You're doing something you're passionate about, and you're getting paid for it. So I can't think of anything better. You've got this incredible hands-on background. You've built these really incredible Lego sets. You understand car audio so when I, I would like to go for riding your car because i know the audio is going to sound really good so we'll put a, a like a great rock album or, or a great piece of opera and today you're enabling the future of autonomy at zf from go-karts to autonomy what has that journey been like did you ever sit back when you're building the go-kart and mr sherman's gonna say wait a second one day this thing's gonna be able to drive itself and i'm gonna be at the forefront of enabling it to drive itself so absolutely not. You know, at that point, I was you know focused on on just having something that we could race around the uh, the high school uh, playground and and parking lot and so on. Um, and actually, at the beginning of my career, when I joined Ford, I actually first started off as an engineer in the special vehicle engineering department, which develops performance models of regular production cars targeted enthusiast drivers. So that's about as far away from autonomy as you can get. Um, so that was my, my starting point in automotive. But actually, my second uh, graduate rotation with Ford moved into, into the R&D department. And uh, all the way back here around 1990 or 91, I actually had my first contact with vehicle automation. Um, and by coincidence, it was driving a, a prototype ZF or actually this was a, a couple of acquisitions previously. It was Lucas um, at the time but it was one of their test cars equipped with adaptive cruise control, so radar-based adaptive cruise control. So you know, all the way back in 30 years ago was my first contact with vehicle autonomy. Um, and then uh, ultimately I, I joined TRW back in 2007. And uh, at that point I was working in product planning and strategy for driver assistance systems. Um, so at that point, uh, TRW was in production with radar cruise control systems with Volkswagen and uh, also on commercial vehicles and was just getting ready to launch its first uh, lane keeping system, uh, automated steering on the uh, Lancia Delta in Europe. So really the last almost 15 years that I've been with TRW and now ZF, um, I've been working to bring some levels of vehicle automation into the mainstream. What did you think when the first time when you drove that vehicle with adaptive cruise control? Do you think, oh my God, this is scary? Oh my God, this is cool. Is it going to work? What What were you thinking when you when you first drove that vehicle? Uh, the first experience, it was actually programmed quite conservatively, and it was a little bit frustrating to drive simply because we had a target vehicle that we were following, but it was really kind of slow to accelerate and follow it, and so on. So my first thoughts were, you know, I can see the benefit for this for some areas, but it's not fast enough for me. Um, but again, you know, that was coming from, a, I would say, a relatively young man's back, uh, perspective and background. Uh, but I think, you know, even at that point, you know, if it, you know, certainly living on the West Coast or, or living in Europe, as I was at the time, close to London, you know, recognize the benefit for, for traffic jams. Because you've got this go-kart mentality, you, you want to go fast, okay, not working, but if you're going into London, you're going around Hyde Park, you're going into Knightsbridge, it's it's bumper to bumper, so I'd imagine an experience like that's like, okay, I can go into London 
and have a great meal and not get stressed out by the time I get there. And that's really one of the, the true benefits of adaptive cruise control that you've experienced in the UK and that individuals around the world experience today as a, uh, as a lot of vehicles have the technology. And as we, we look to the to the future, we, we all know that the future is going to be autonomy. And I'd love to point out that ZF offers your customers three levels of level two plus autonomous driving system, the ZF Co-Assist, the ZF Co-Drive, and the ZF Co-Pilot. Will you please kindly explain differences between these solutions and why one of your customers might choose a different solution over another? Yeah, certainly, Grayson. Um, so first of all, most of these systems, or they're all really built on a basic level of, of driver assistance and safety. So starting off with uh, Co-Assist first. Um, Co-Assist is our ZF internally developed level two automated driving solution. That builds on our um, safety systems or driver assistance systems um, for Euro NCAP, which include things like automatic emergency braking, lane keeping, and so on, which are really a group of safety functions. And to that, it adds a, a group of comfort and uh, convenience functions for, uh, for our drivers. So that means uh, things like uh, traffic jam support or highway driving support. So when you're driving on the highway, um, you know, the, the vehicle is, is able to do some of that or most of that driving task for you when you're driving bumper to bumper at, at low speed or you know, cruising out at, at regular highway speeds in lighter traffic. Um, moving beyond that, and, and so that, sorry, that uh, co-assist system, as I said, it's, it's developed all ZF in-house. And really one of our goals there is to be um, about the, the best value or, or most cost efficient um, level two automated driving system on the market. Um, and so it's the focus there is really about affordability, using those sensors that are already in the vehicle to provide those safety functions and giving them some, some, some value that the, the vehicle owner can, can use every day. Uh, once we move beyond that into uh, co-drive, um, this is uh, offering a, a, a greater level of convenience for our customers. Um, it's based on our partner Mobilize uh, Vision and Automated Driving software suite um, and offers really a, a truly hands-free and feet-free um, driving experience. Um, so, for example, one difference uh, with the co-assist system, if you were driving on the highway and you wanted to change lanes because you'd come up behind a slower-moving vehicle, the driver would request the system to change lanes by using the turn signal. In the co-drive system, um, that would be done automatically for you. So there's less involvement needed by the driver. Um, and then finally, we have uh, the co-pilot system. So the co-pilot system is uh, jointly developed with uh, another partner, NVIDIA. Um, and that is, is using their processors and, and their function suite as well. And um, you know, it's, it's more scalable. It offers um, a, even additional functionality, including things like uh, automated garage or automated valet parking. So um, the uh, co-pilot system is, is an open architecture. We can also integrate functions from the vehicle manufacturers themselves or other third parties if desired. So it's really quite an open and, and flexible architecture. So of the three, you know, they're really targeted at, at different levels of functionality and different price points in the market. But our goal is to, to be able to offer something for everybody. It's a really smart approach. I'm super happy you highlighted automated valet parking. 
We've all seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and we, we know what happens if you get a rogue person who takes that beautiful Ferrari for a spin around Chicago. But I think that's going to be an incredible market that's only going to expand over the, over the years, especially as individuals start to go back to restaurants and the parking garage are sitting there empty and they need to use it. And that's a really great thing. You mentioned several times customers. Could you share a high-level example of, of who your customers would be? Um, to, to be frank, I think probably virtually every auto manufacturer in the world is a customer for a ZF somewhere. Um, you know, in, in particular, in the driver assistance space, um, we have you know, really a, a widespread of customers in, in Europe, in North America, um, and also over in Asia. So that's a clear indication of why I have these conversations. Seemingly ZF's name always comes up because you're, you're working with everybody. And I, I love to point out, it's not just automotive ZF's working in. You're working in agriculture. You're you're working in trucking. You're working in medium sprinter vans, regular size delivery vans. It's really, I got to give you guys a like, it's really impressive the portfolio of customers that you work with from different vehicle types, which is really, truly amazing. It's something that yourself and the entire organization should be extremely proud of. NVIDIA is a company that's hot. They're in the news every day. They're doing incredible things. They're dominating blockchain with their processors, but they're also working a lot on on the automated driving systems. And with your Z, uh, ZF Copilot, you have a partnership with NVIDIA for that. Could you talk about what each partner brings to the table, please? It is. The, the collaboration with NVIDIA um, is primarily about uh, jointly delivering the processing power that's needed by OEMs to enable, enable higher levels of autonomy. So NVIDIA is clearly a leader in bringing powerful processors into the automotive uh, embedded environment. Um, and what ZF brings is really decades of experience of, of designing and manufacturing safety critical electronics ECUs. You know, we do this for braking and steering systems. We do this for airbag controllers and powertrain systems. And we also do this for driver assistance systems. So we really understand you know, the customer's needs, you know, their expectations around uh, performance, um, environmental capability, you know, able to operate high and low temperature and shock and vibration, um, and all the other things that we need to make these uh, powerful processes survive for, uh, for the lifetime of a vehicle. When ZF looks at the future of autonomy, you're doing a, a lot of things across the ecosystem. You have a great partnership with NVIDIA for the compute power. What is the company's main focus when it comes to autonomous vehicles? So when it comes to autonomous vehicles, there's really, uh, there's two axes to this. On one side is the product offering. And there we aim to, to offer anything from the individual components uh, a manufacturer might need to build their own autonomous system, whether that's radars or cameras or these uh, domain controllers or a, a braking or, or steering system, um, all the way up to turnkey automated driving systems. Um, and even beyond that, um, through one of our subsidiaries to get there, we can actually offer complete autonomous transport systems for public transport operators, including everything from the shuttles themselves to the charging infrastructure because they're electric, to the call systems, the, you know, the passenger interface, you know, billing system and, and request system and, uh, and so on. Um, so you know, really it's, it's the, the full spectrum of products. And then secondly, we aim to do that not just for you know, the passenger car market, 
it's also to do that for other market segments as well. As you mentioned earlier, uh, we're not just in the passenger car space. Uh, commercial vehicle is a very big part of our business and also what we call our off-highway applications, um, which includes things like vehicles for uh, agriculture and restricted area operation. Agriculture is a fascinating business that's that's going through autonomy. We recently had the, the co-founders of Bear Flag Robotics, on the, which is operating autonomous tractors, and they were talking about the positive impact it's having for farmers that are their customers. I'd love to know, how is the business for ZF in agriculture growing as it's compared to the automotive business? Are you seeing this incredible growth of agriculture? It's, it's really you know, agriculture and, and a couple of other off-highway applications like mining have been some of the earliest adopters of fully autonomous vehicle technology. Um, and so for us, it's a, a great place to actually learn about uh, you know, real-world uses and, and, and do some real-world testing and development. Um, you know, with, uh, with agriculture in particular, uh, one of the things that's very important is to be able to accurately position a, a tractor in a field. Um, and, you know, we've done trials with one of our customers and we can position a tractor within a field to within about three quarters of an inch. So what that means for us is, or for the farmer, is when he goes out and he, he's planting his seeds, he knows exactly where he is. But then when he has to come back around and, and fertilize them, for example, he doesn't have to spray the whole field. He can selectively spray because he knows exactly where he put his crops. So these you know, low speed, um, relatively simple environment, you know, it's, it's not out in a city. There's not people running around all over the place. Really give us some good uh, real world uh, development cases for uh, uh, you know, building our technology and our capabilities. Three quarters of an inch accuracy is game changing, especially if you're operating a large commercial farm with various crops. It's completely game changing, game changing. When you look at that farmer, that's he's, he's got ZF components in there. And he's got the biggest smile on his face because he knows exactly where everything is planted with high accuracy. And then you have you know another customer working in mining. Does ZF develop different components because of mine? You're going underground. You're in a more of a hostile environment where a rock could bump into it, where a farm, it might be dirt or, or mud or, you know, some sort of spray. Are those components designed differently? Uh, in many cases, sorry, in, in many cases, the, the basic components may be similar. Uh, one difference, for example, with agriculture, you know, a traditional uh, ZF business was transmissions. And so we develop unique transmissions for uh, for tractors, for example, with power takeoffs to run um, supplemental equipment that wouldn't necessarily be be needed for mining. Um, but today, you know, electrification is coming everywhere. So as we start to bring electrification into our transmissions, then uh, you know, with some of those basic building blocks, there, there is more and more potential reuse for, in particular, some of these low-speed type applications. Um, when it comes to the, the control systems, you know, thinking about uh, vehicle automation, um, some of the sensors and controllers may be quite similar. One of the differences may be more around the, the maintenance and cleaning requirements. So depending on the type of environment a vehicle is working in, then uh, you know, it may have a, a more or less stringent cleaning regimen for cameras, for example, or, or LiDAR sensors. It's, it's interesting you said that... Um 
one of the founders of Luminar and I were, were talking uh, last year. And he talked about love bugs in Florida and how they can get on the lidars, and they're trying to figure a way to clean it. We saw Waymo with the cleaning off the bird poop, and so that's a, a huge issue. You write about cleaning sensors, and it's one of the industries working towards. I love saying the components uh, segment here for a minute. How about the trucking industry? So those trucks are, you know, they're heavy versus an agriculture truck. Is that a different component, or is that just you know similar component to ag and mining? So many of the components will be similar. Um, there are some unique requirements for commercial trucks, uh, on highway trucks in particular. Um, so, and in particular, for example, with cameras. Um, on a commercial vehicle, one thing that's relatively unique is we, we may have a separately suspended cab, uh, which means that the cab is able to move around independently of the vehicle chassis. Um, and that can lead to more pitch, for example, you know, the, the, tr the nose of the vehicle moving up and down. And so the camera image shifting um, vertically more than you might see in something like a car, for example. Um, so the, there, there is often some tuning work that's needed to be done on the hardware sometimes to adjust for fields of view, depending on where the sensors can be mounted but also some tuning of the algorithms um, based on the perspective they have of the view that they're looking at, and also any unique uh, motion characteristics of the vehicle itself. Is it a fair assumption to say that ZF is clearly, because basically what you've said that ZF is clearly thinking things through, you're not cutting corners, you're, you're looking at each individual application to, I don't want to use the word customize, but to, to develop a solution that works in the environment where that vehicle will be operating? It is, um, you know, that it's not a case of that. There's one solution that that suits everybody. You know, there are different um, applications. You know, how the vehicles are used are different, um, and therefore how to really optimize the the automated control system for that vehicle. There's usually some some adaption or some uh, some tuning required really to get the best out of it and to to fully meet those customers' needs. For that application is that where the great zf corporate phrase comes autonomy is not a one-size-fits-all proposition is that the basis of that uh, i think so you know, it, it's really about you know really understanding what is it that the customer is trying to achieve with their vehicle and, and what their application is um, figuring out which of the building blocks we have available we can use to put together the best system for them and then work with them to to do that integration and, and to get it set up um, to deliver what they're looking for. We, we talked about trucking. When you look at the trucking industry, we're seeing a huge shift towards autonomous trucks. And are you seeing a giant growth of the ZF braking and steering systems division as more and more of these vehicles, sorry, trucks come online? It is. There's certainly growth in that area. And, uh, and for ZF, this has actually been one of our most active areas the last couple of years or the last few years. Um, in terms of uh, M&A activity. Um, so when ZF acquired TRW around five, six years ago, that brought um, electric steering into the product portfolio. So that was one half of the puzzle. And then uh, more recently, the acquisition of Webco braking system really completed the, the product portfolio for us for commercial vehicles. So now we have in-house the sensors, the radars and cameras that we need, the uh, the domain controllers um, boxes like our pro ai units and then now we have the electronically controllable braking and steering systems 
that allow us to actually control the uh, the path and, and speed of the vehicle. So um, as we bring those systems together, it really allows us to develop and offer a, a turnkey automated driving system with all of those key building blocks in there. Um, the industry has, has really started off um, already for commercial vehicles with driver assistance. Um, automated emergency braking has been a requirement in Europe now for almost 10 years. Um, and now we're moving beyond those basic driver assistance systems, collision warning, automatic braking, into higher levels of, uh, of driver support through level two, but really moving towards level four and, uh, and autonomous operation. It's interesting you brought up the AEB from Europe because we're seeing the, the push for electrification kind of basically really started in Europe and now it's coming across the pond. And so that will be really interesting to see as electrification comes online more here in America. And I, I want to stay on acquisitions for a minute because I'd love to know, ZF acquired to get there. It's a really beautiful looking shuttle. It's all electric. I like how it does the, the I'm going to call it the circle on your promo videos, it looks like it's operating phenomenally. What are the plans for that? Will that tie into that, as I mentioned, the electrification shift coming to America, the two get their shuttle is all electric. Will ZF look to to scale that shuttle in the United States and eventually take it over the pond uh, to Europe? So um, actually to get there is based in Europe, it's based in the Netherlands. And um, they've actually been um, in operation with those autonomous shuttles for over 20 years now. Um, they actually got started all the way back in uh, 1999. And uh, since then, uh, they've been through a couple of generations of vehicles. Um, they're now just launching their third generation. So um, what To Get There does, does is it really brings us a, a route to market to, to be able to take our full autonomous uh, system and get some real world experience with it. Um, that we can operate as an independent business, but also we can learn from as, as automation moves beyond the low-speed shuttle and people mover business throughout the industry and across all of the different vehicle types. So, um, you know, really some of the, the applications uh, that uh, to get there is focused on are, are last mile transportation. Um, generally, those are in restricted areas today. Um, whether it's a, an industrial park, for example, or um, an airport location. Um, so some of those restricted use applications are relatively easy to transfer to other countries, you know, to, to spread around internationally. Um, what becomes more challenging is if the shuttles need to operate in mixed traffic or on public roads. You know, then, then things get more complex. There's more work that needs to be done to develop and tune the software for you know, different countries, typical driving conditions and, and how the traffic reacts, maybe different road layouts and so on. Um, so there's there's more work to be done there in terms of uh, development, but also testing and validation. The other thing is there's the policy issues. When you're operating in a closed environment from a, from a policy standpoint for your customers, it's a lot easier. And I love to stay on the component theme here for a minute. What are the key differences in the braking system for to get their shuttle compared to a, a human-driven vehicle? Are they completely different? Is there more redundancy in the shuttle versus a human-driven vehicle? So the, the key difference, and, and actually just more broadly, between an autonomous vehicle or a, a level four type vehicle and a traditional passenger car um, or a, a traditional road vehicle, 
is in the case of a traditional road vehicle, the driver is there and the driver can really act as the redundant braking system. So um, today we may have electronic control with stability controls and so on. But uh, you know, if there's a failure of the electronics, um, the driver can still push a brake pedal, which you know pushes brake fluid around the uh, some hydraulic pipes, and uh, you know clamp, clamps the calipers and brings the vehicle to a stop. So having uh, you know the, the the type of electronics that are required to work together with the driver in that case are relatively simple. Um, once we move to uh, a level three or a level four vehicle, first of all, maybe one still with a driver. Um, if the driver isn't actively part of the driving process, we really need a higher level of, of fault tolerance or redundancy so that if there is a, a single point failure, the system is still able to, uh, to bring the car safely to a stop if needed. Um, so that can include things like uh, maybe dual microprocessors, uh, dual power stages controlling um, the braking system, and in some cases even maybe dual hydraulic pumps. So essentially, you know, two independent braking control systems, both of which are able to to pump the hydraulic fluid around the vehicle and and stop the vehicle if needed. Um, and then in particular, once you move into the you know, level four, level five autonomous vehicles, there may be no longer a brake pedal or a driver even in the vehicle. So at that point, you really need these highly redundant control uh, systems for braking. Um, and as I said, you know, again, maybe uh, the, the dual braking type system. Then is redundancy the key to enabling high, higher levels of autonomy? Uh, redundancy is, is a general term. It's really about um, high reliability. Um, and so the design can be a little bit different. Um, for example, um, in the case of a, an electrically driven motor, um, one thing that we can do is we may have a single motor, but that motor may have two sets of, of uh, windings. And each set of windings is driven by its own microprocessor and its own uh, power stage. So that way, if there is a single point failure of one system, we have a degraded um, operation at 50% capacity, for example which will still allow in, in virtually all cases, you know, limp home or limp aside type functionality. So you know, redundancy in some cases is, is adding a, a second of everything. That may be more than what's needed, but instead we'll have this fault tolerance, you know, ways of having lower levels of, of redundancy or capabilities within the design. It's a really smart approach to safety. It's a smart approach to doing things right because it, it with, the, with the fault tolerance the redundancy you can't go wrong you're only going to in increase the safety as the engineers today they're developing autonomous vehicles they're not ready for prime time they're not ready to be shipped in large numbers but we're seeing this giant shift in society towards plug-in hybrid vehicles and electric vehicles i'd love to know how is zf preparing for this this giant sea change well, you know, ZF is a company that, that founded and started building transmissions you know, all the way back in, I think, around 1916. So we've been in the, the, the transmission business for over a century. Um, and that was really tied to the, the needs of internal combustion motors you know, to, to be able to generate high torque at low speeds and higher RPM at high speeds. 
Um, with electrification, you know, that's that's really having a, sim a significant impact on our traditional transmission business. So um, we've actually taken two paths to uh, to really respond to the electrification trend. Um, one is you know, we're developing and we're actually in production in Europe already with our own electric drivetrains. So there we build the complete system, the motors, the control electronics, and so on. Um, the second path is we are electrifying our traditional transmissions. So because we are a, a transmission manufacturer, we can do a really nice job of actually integrating a, a hybrid electric motor into the transmission casing. Um, and that makes it as, as simple as possible for our customers to, to mix and match and to make some of those you know, key changes towards vehicle electrification, especially for plug-in hybrids. So you know, the ability for some models or for some markets to use a conventional internal combustion powertrain with a conventional transmission, and then just by swapping out the transmission and adding in a, a battery pack, it's oversimplifying a little bit, but you know, from the, the driveline perspective, to be able to, to have that motor in there really makes uh, it simpler in terms of the mechanical integration for plug-in. Most importantly, you're giving your customers the tools they need to succeed. Uh, with, on the plug-in topic, um, you know, th there are a couple of things that need to happen. One is the industry needs some time or you know, countries need some time to build up the infrastructure to be ready for a fully electric future. Um, and so it's not just the auto industry that's investing. It's also coming from the utility companies and so on to get the hundreds of thousands of charging points that are needed to make a fully electric vehicle you know, a, a viable uh, transport choice for, for the mass market. Um, Plug-in is a way to, to help bridge that gap um, in terms of on one side, you know, not demanding or not having the same rapid rise in, in electrical demand, but also for consumers and in particular for larger vehicles to help bridge that gap to, uh, to electrification with a vehicle that can be electric part of the time, whether it's driving at low speed in the city or you know, it's using the, uh, the, the hybrid for additional boost, whether it's for, for towing or something like that. Um, so really, you know, we, I would see the, the plug-in hybrid is, is really helping to bridge both customers' expectations as we get towards an electric car that can drive as far in a day as I want to uh, on my schedule, and on the other side with, with having the infrastructure ready for uh, a fully electrified fleet. It's a smart way forward, and it also eliminates range anxiety. If somebody that wants to, if you want to use the term, dip their toe into electrification, but they're afraid that they're going to get stuck somewhere, it's a great it's a great way to dip the toe. And as you mentioned, if the infrastructure gets built out and range anxiety can dissipate, it's a really smart strategy moving forward. And plus, you get great gas mileage, which will save you money at the pump. And I love to know, as we've talked about all different elements of mobility, is middleware software, is that the, the dots that connect everything that are going to enable this whole vision of the future of mobility to come together? So I'd say standardizing on middleware or a middleware approach is really one of the key tools the industry is going to need to be able to introduce highly automated vehicles into the market. Um, and that's really due to the complexity of, of the software involved. You know, we see today 
quotes that uh, a modern vehicle might have 100 or 150 million lines of code in it. When we look at a level four autonomous vehicle, that might be up to four or 500 million lines of code. Um, but today, the, the, the traditional architecture that we have is, in almost all cases, um, each um, electronic control unit in the vehicle has its own integrated software, its own functions, and we can have tens or even a hundred or more of these individual ECUs in the vehicle. Um, the problem is each of them was developed by different suppliers, and there's a great deal of duplicated effort that goes into those ECUs, in, especially in what you might call the back office functions, things like diagnostics, vehicle communications, and so on. Um, so you know, each time there's a new generation, a lot of that work gets redone. If a vehicle manufacturer changes supplier from company A to company B, basically all of company A's work gets pitched out and it gets re uh, reproduced again or duplicated again by company B. And so one of the things that, that the industry is really recognizing at the moment is that's not really a sustainable model is to have more and more software engineers duplicating each other's work. Um, and so your know, middleware for cars is really very much like iOS or Android is for our smartphones. Um, it's a, a, a tool, um, some software that really sits in the middle between the hardware and the functions and applications that as users we actually see and experience. Um, and that middleware really makes it much easier to develop and maintain software over time and enables much higher reuse of these developed software modules across different vehicle platforms within a manufacturer or even across vehicle manufacturers. So it's really about efficiency and engineering reuse because you know, there isn't the time and the money and the people involved to just keep hiring more and more software engineers um, to keep doing the, the things the same way that we, we have been doing in the past as vehicles get more and more complex. It also increases efficiencies and can bring the safety benefits of autonomous vehicles to the masses sooner rather than later. And Andrew, bringing this conversation full circle, you've mentored the Farmington Hills robotic team, 3414 Hackbots for nine years. Is this your Mr. Sherman moment? Grace, in some ways it is. It's it's really the opportunity to to spark an interest in, in teenagers in, in STEM topics you know, at the high school level. Um, at a point where students can can be influenced and, and guided and steered um, and through programs that go beyond really what a lot of high schools are, are able to offer in their regular curriculums today. Um, so I'm involved in, in the FIRST Robotics and also another local program here building a solar-powered race car. Um, but for the students that come in and take part and, and really get engaged with this, it's really you know, an opportunity to to be able to to steer them towards a potential career in in engineering or STEM subjects um, and and through things like internships, co-ops, and training opportunities as well. So you know, there's certainly a, a good career to be had out of of engineering, um, and this is really a chance to you know to ignite that spark of interest in in some of the the students there. You ignite the spark of interest and you say, hey, guess what, kids? Engineering is cool. You can build things. <laughs> I built a golf. I built a go-kart. You can build a golf cart. It's just once children understand what engineering can do and what you can build, it's just their imaginations can take them to uh, completely wonderful places. And Andrew, 
doing these incredible things for these students. You're having your Mr. Sherman moment. I'd love to know what type of opportunities do these students have and what type of skills do they gather going through these programs? Well, for, for the students, they get to you know, design, engineer, build and test uh, some pretty cool robots. Um, and in particular here in Michigan, where I'm based, um, you know, First Robotics has huge support from the automotive industry, um, both from the, the big three car manufacturers, but also the hundreds of, of tier ones and, and other suppliers around here. And the, the real reason for that is, you know, the students get hands-on experience. They get to design and build autonomous electrified robots made out of lightweight materials, you know, polycarbonates, composites, aluminium, and so on. So these students are really getting hands-on experience with all the skills the auto industry is going to need the next 10, 20, 30 years to develop the next generations of automobiles and, and other vehicles. So you know, really for, for my students, it's really giving them some you know, a leg up or a head start into uh, to getting into a, a good paying career and really helping to solve uh, some of those you know, mobility problems that we've been talking about uh, during the session. The other great thing I want to point out, they're learning these new skills. They're, they're having a really great path to a great job. But the most important part is they're developing the re relationship inside of those companies that they can eventually get a job. And so they don't have to call up, hi, HR, I'm going to apply my application or go on LinkedIn. They can reach out to Mrs. Smith or Mr. Smith, and they have that, that personal relationship. And it's just, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. It is. It's, you know, it's, it's really a chance for the students to work alongside professional mentors who are often generally very experienced engineers. So they're working in a much more or you know, a professional type environment. And um, you know, it's really also in some cases a, a chance to work in a collaborative way that students don't normally get involved in. Um, just to give an example, um, you know, our team, we, we have sometimes up to about 100 students. And so the engineers are learning, uh, you know, they're, they're learning to design as a group. You know, typically in school, they don't ever work in a, in a group bigger than maybe three or four people on a project. Here they're working with groups of tens of people. So especially for the student leaders, they're having to do project management, you know, real communication and organization of a, of a big group of, uh, of high school students, which is, is pretty challenging. Teachers will tell you that. They're understanding conflict resolution 101. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, and I want to mention this, this last part of it, that mentorship is very important. We had Aaron Jefferson from Luminar on our previous podcast, and he talked about a mentor that he had early on in his life that helped him get into the automotive business and how, and Aaron said it in his own words, it completely changed his life. And it's really incredible the, the, the fact that the positive impact that mentors can can have on individuals, especially as they go go into their careers. So thank you for highlighting that. And as we look to wrap up this extremely insightful conversation, what role do you expect ZF to play in the future? And what would you like our listeners to take away about ZF? So you know, in terms of where mobility is going, you know, for me, uh, I think the future of mobility is really about um, you know, having more choices um, in modes of transportation for short journeys. Um, so more flexibility in choosing how we travel, the opportunity to maybe be more energy efficient, um, electrification becoming the norm in the next maybe 10 or 15 years, um, and autonomy 
offering not just that flexibility in short-term travel, but also the ability to remain independent even as the global population is aging. You know, many of us may have an older relative who we're you know, not quite sure about their driving abilities anymore, but they're reluctant to give that up. So automation brings the opportunity to allow people to, to keep that independence as, as we all get older. Um, and in terms of, of what ZF's role in that will be, you know, we've been a, a major contributor to personal mobility for the last uh, century, involved in anything from cars and trucks to boats and even airships. So um, we expect to continue to play a major role in, in transportation for people and goods for the next century and beyond. I could say this, that the, the future for ZF is extremely bright because you will continue to play a vital, and I repeat, a vital role in the ecosystem. And as we've heard Andrew share this incredible insight to, to ZF that tomorrow is today, today is tomorrow, and ZF is the future. Andrew, thank you so much for taking your time out of the day to come on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Grayson. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next by emailing podcast at SAE.org. That's podcast at SAE.org. Tune in next week to hear from Caterpillar's Michael C. Murphy, Chief Engineer at Mindstar Solutions. And be sure to follow us on LinkedIn to stay connected and continue the conversation. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.